sorry, it's going to be kind of dark, but I think everyone can see me. I'm very pale, so the light should catch me all right. I'm very thankful to be here uh, this year more than usual. I'm always thankful to be here. This is always the one week more than any other week that means the most to me that I uh, plan my entire, well, except for this year, plan my entire calendar around. Uh, I was not able to be with you Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, or Wednesday up until midnight. I think I rolled in about then. Uh, I was teaching at a VBS. Uh, and I said to them what I'll say to you. The only reason why I would not be here Sunday as soon as the doors are open is either a medical emergency, not a medical situation. I can endure through those. But a medical emergency, I'm in the hospital and they will not let me leave. Or if I'm called to preach the gospel, which is where I was and what I was doing. So I wasn't just chilling out somewhere because I would rather be doing that here. I was preaching, uh, which is what I love to do more than anything. I'm very thankful to be here tonight. I was not supposed to be your Friday night speaker. I was uh, supposed to be your Thursday night speaker. Caleb was supposed to speak Friday, but he had a scheduling conflict, so we just switched around. Um, but it works out because you have now gone through Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, five sermons, each one of which dealt with a part of the Christian armor. And of course, Caleb last night dealt with both the shield and the sword, the Christian weapon. So you've now finished it. We've talked about it all. Everything that you know about the Christian armor, you've heard. Obviously, there's always going to be more for other preachers to expound on. And I guarantee you, if you haven't already, the longer you're a Christian, the more you will hear the Christian armor sermon. Preachers always have that one in their arsenal, and they'll whip it out you know, occasionally and preach their sermon. And even though every preacher is different, every sermon because of that is a little bit different, every Christian armor sermon sort of follows the same template. You have an introduction you have your six points. Each point corresponds to a piece of the armor. They talk about, usually they'll talk about, here's the breastplate. Here's what the breastplate looks like. Here's where the breastplate goes. Here's what the breastplate does. And that corresponds to, in the Christian, and then they quote the text, the breastplate of righteousness. And here's how that connects and corresponds one to the other. And all right, moving on. Then they go to shoes or belt or helmet, whatever. And they walk you through the points. And then when they're done, they give the conclusion, bada boom, we're out of here. That's it. It's that sermon. I'm not knocking it. I've preached them myself. They're great sermons. We just took that sermon and just broke it up into different parts. But we got a night left over. There's no more armor to preach about. The sword has been talked about. I've got no more weapon to talk to you about in great detail. It's going to come up in a minute, but not in great detail. You've heard it all. So what else is there to say? I want to talk to you tonight. Not about the Christian armor, but about the Christian Soldier, because that is what you are. Do not leave it to me, the guy who happens to be preaching tonight, or to Caleb who spoke last night, or on down the list. Do not leave it to that person, someone else, to be the Christian soldier for you. Do not leave it to them to fight the fight for you. You fight the fight with them. They will fight. This is what Caleb said last night. Together, unified, shields interlocked. Pressing forward against a foe who seemingly outnumbers us tenfold. Together we fight this fight. You are the Christian soldier, not just me. So you are wearing this armor. You are slipping inside this armor, these protective pieces, holding up this defensive shield, holding up this offensive sword. You are the Christian soldier. What does that mean? What I wonder what Paul had in mind when he wrote Ephesians 6 
10 through 17. Because I tell you what most people, and I, I, me too, usually think of first off is, well, probably Paul was thinking about a Roman centurion. Because the Roman Empire's expanse, uh, ex nation expanded all across that territory, all across Ephesus and Laodicea and those regions roundabout where this letter would have circulated in the immediacy before it was picked up uh, worldwide. So they would have been well familiar with the Roman soldier. They would have known what a Roman centurion looked like. They would have known to fear a Roman centurion. So I can understand why if you think soldier, your first thought is centurion, and Paul just uses that. But it also is the case that Ephesus is old Sparta territory. And it might have been as a result of that, where for almost the entirety of Sparta's existence as, an, as a uh, powerful political force, Ephesus was under their jurisdiction. So therefore, in that region, they would have perhaps had a secondary thought. When you say soldier, they think Spartan. In which case, Paul's illustration, comparing a soldier to a Christian, carries even more weight. Because a Spartan was a soldier bred for battle. I don't know how much you know about history, how much you know about Sparta or Spartans. If all you know about it is the movie 300, you don't know anything. That's all you know because that movie is pure fiction. But there is a lot of fascinating material to consider, which I will not share with you because it will probably bore you. But I will summarize the life of a Spartan soldier. And the life of a Spartan soldier begins at birth. A baby boy who would be a soldier. The women weren't allowed, sorry. A baby boy who would potentially grow up to be a Spartan soldier is selected by his Spartan government, ripped away from his nursing mother while he is still an infant, carried away to the top of Mount Tagadus and placed there to be left overnight. Placed to be exposed to the elements where they would have to just survive. Have you ever seen a baby do anything on its own? No, that's why we call them babies. They can't do anything on their own. But that baby is going to be just left out there. And if by some amazing circumstance the baby survives, great. That is a warrior fit for Sparta. But if, which probably would happen, a wolf comes and takes it away or it just dies of exposure or it gets sick and dies soon after, if that happens, then the Spartans just shrug and say, well, it's a good thing we didn't put this guy in our army, this baby to become a man in our army, because look how weak they are. They couldn't even survive the weather. But if that baby should, by hook or by crook or by amazing uh, circumstances, live, then that baby is brought back, not to his mother, but to the Spartan training camps, where from... As soon as they're able to walk, they're taught about formations. As soon as they're able to pick up a stick, they're taught how to swing a sword. As soon as they're able to pick up a piece of wood, they're taught how to hold a shield properly. They are taught in playground activities how to work in formation, how to work in, unit, in unity, how to be part of a group of soldiers. From the beginning of their mental development, their entire thought is, I am a soldier of Sparta. And that does not change at any point in their development. Because while this young baby is slowly growing up and becoming a toddler and becoming a child and becoming a young teenager, under him, below him, after him are coming up other ones who are younger. And those things which he has learned, he is commanded to teach to the younger. They don't leave it to two or three men with long gray beards like something in a fantasy movie to teach them all the wisdom. No, they know what they know and they impart it to someone below them because they're taught someone above them and they turn around and teach it to someone after them. And this cycle of student turned teacher turned student turned teacher defines their existence up until the age of 21. And then when they turn 21, 
they become a soldier for Sparta. A career they will hold until they're dead or if they happen to live to the age of 60. When there is a war, they're on the front lines. When their kingdom is invaded, they're on the front lines. When they're going to invade, they're on the front lines. When they're outnumbered 300 to 1, they're on the front lines. They are Sparta. They are the warrior of Sparta. And they will fight to the last as a soldier of Sparta. They are there fighting full time. If they should live long enough to see the age of 60, they get a retirement. They get a stipend from their government, a little bit of money, a little something, something on the side. They get some land given to them. If they don't have it, they get a wife given to them. They get a chance just to sit and just live and sip tea and, uh, on, a, on a rocking chair and just enjoy their life. But they're not actually out because they are then enlisted in the reserves of Sparta. They can't do what they once could the way they once could. They can't swing a sword as fast. They can't march as quickly. Their, their mind is not as sharp as it once was. But should the front line, should those 21 to 59 year olds drop the ball, should they fail to defend their home country and the army start marching in, they will pick up their weapons. They will pick up their helmet. They will pick up their shield and off they will go to fight again because a Spartan is a soldier from birth to death. And the Apostle Paul no ignorant man, a student of history, would have known that, would have known his Ephesian audience knew that, and would have thought there's a lot in that that reminds me of Christians. Because Christians, you are a soldier bred for battle. From the moment of your birth, your new birth in Jesus Christ, you are cast into the elements. You are thrust into a world that hates you. But I'll tell you this, you're cast into a world, yes, it hates you. It may sometimes seem like it, seems like it loves you. More than anything, the world hates what you are. The world hates who you represent. And so while the world may be polite to you, while the world may be kind to you, while the world may sincerely think it loves you because it sees the physical you, you know you are more than the physical you. You are a spiritual person. The old you has been put to death and born again. That new you is hated. They may not know why they hate it, but they hate it because it is not of them. They are of the world, and you now are of Christ. And so you are hated by everyone else in those elements. And more than that, who you represent is what is hated. But you don't just get a day there like a Spartan baby boy. No, this is the rest of your life in those elements, in the wild. And you're not being threatened by wolves. You're being threatened by deceivers by tempters, by connivers trying to allure you and lure you away from your master Christ. You're a baby in the elements and you're a student turned teacher because you know what you were taught. And you may not have every answer. You'll never have every answer, but you have enough. You have at least enough to do what you had to do to become a Christian, which is a good starting point for evangelism. Turn around and tell it to someone else. You who are the, the student can become the teacher to another. And then while you turn around and learn from someone above you, you'll turn around and teach someone below you. And that cycle of teacher turned student turned teacher turned student will continue all, not just till you're 21, but all for the rest of your life. And then what happens? Well, it just happened the moment you became a Christian. From the moment you were born, you weren't just thrust into the elements later to become a teacher, later to become a student. From the moment you were born, you became a full-time soldier, a hard-fighting soldier on the battlefield. You are waging constant warfare 
It's exhausting. It's debilitating. It wears you out, wears you down, and makes you want to give up. And that's exactly what your enemy wants because he is relentless. He's not omnipotent, but he has more energy. He has more drive. He has more determination. He has more patience than probably any of us. He will never give up until he is put down for good trying to stop you being a soldier in this army. But that's who you are. That's your life. You were born again into it. And unlike a Spartan baby who can't help who his mama is, you chose this birth. And what a good thing it is that you did. We'll get to that. Don't worry. Because while you're a soldier, you're not a soldier like they are until the age of 59 and then you become a reserve. There are no reserves. You're just it. You're always going to be it until death. But what is death for you? What is death for a Christian? It's an express lane to Jesus. That's retirement. Your retirement comes after they put you down or after your old body just gives up. But there's no reserves here. That's the one great difference. I suppose if you want to finish and put a bow on it and make it a, a certain similarity, you could say this. You may be an older Christian, an older soldier, and you can't wield the sword as sharply as you once could. That's fine. You still have a lot of knowledge. You still have a lot you can offer. You maybe can't go as rigorously and as vigorously and as fast as you once could, but you can still go and you can still do what you can still do. We'll call you a reserve, but that's no, that's no insult. That's just a recognition of your many years of faithful service. And those years you still have yet to come. You're still a soldier. In your own way, hard fighting. You may be tempted, an older soldier, to say, I can't do what I once could. It doesn't matter what you could. It matters what you can. Do what you can, not what you could. And let God take care of the rest. That's you. From young to old, you're a soldier. You will always be a soldier. Lest you give up. Unless you give up. You will always be a soldier for Jesus Christ. And now what is your mission? As a soldier, a soldier needs marching orders. A soldier needs to know where to point his sword. A soldier needs to know where to plant his feet. You are a soldier. Your mission is this endure. That's a very passive kind of word. Like, it, it, it's one thing to say, there's the hill, go take it. There's the, the fortification, go break it. It's one thing to say, there's the island, go seize it. But you're told, just hang on. You're told, just survive. You're told, just get through. That's your mission. Think you can handle that? Alone you cannot. But together, I guarantee, together we can survive it. Now, what I mean by survive is you'll get to the next place. You'll get beyond this world. You'll go beyond the farthest star to a true, re true, true rest, a true paradise, a true comfort in Jesus Christ. Between now and then, just hang on and let us help you hold on. And while you're holding on, the devil's going to be throwing rocks. The devil's going to be shooting flaming arrows like Caleb talked about last night. And while the devil is doing that, what are you doing? You are fighting. You are fighting because you are a Christian soldier, a good fight. Yours is the only fight that is good. Every other fight can be justified to be at least neutral. Most of them are evil, but yours is the one that gets to be called good. Because yours is not of this world which is condemned. Yours is of God who saves the condemned. Yours is the good fight, so fight it. And because it is a good fight orchestrated by the good Christ, you must fight it His way, which means He will tell you who your enemy is. He will tell you who your enemy is not. He will tell you how to fight your enemy. He will tell you what to do with your enemy when you're not fighting Him. You are a soldier of the cross. Fight the good fight. Now let's go to our text. I know it's been read many times. Let's read it one more time in its entirety this week, at least on stage. Ephesians 6, read with me verses 10 through 17. 
Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil, the old Bible says. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Verse 13. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand, stand therefore, having your loins girt about with truth, having on the breastplate of righteousness, and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith, wherewith you shall be able to quench all the fiery darts, that means arrows of the wicked, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. You're a soldier. A soldier must be dressed for the part. That's what we spent all week talking about. But you're a soldier. A soldier must be the right kind of person to play that part. You're not just a guy or a girl in armor. You're first and foremost a saved person. You belong to someone else. You, you were not drafted into this army. You voluntarily gave up your life to belong to this one who in this illustration we will call general, who we will call our captain, who we will call our guiding force, director of their army, Jesus Christ, our commander. So look at some words that we do as a soldier under that commander. First, stand. In the original language, stenai. It means hold your place. You would think a soldier press forward, march forward, march forward, but that's too aggressive for the peacemaker Christ. No, you just stand your ground. You keep your place. While the enemy advances, plant your feet, keep your place, don't move. You're going to be tempted, maybe if you're a hothead, maybe if you're aggressive, to want to fight, to want to charge, to want to attack. No, hold your place. You're going to be tempted, maybe if you're timid, maybe if you're worried, maybe if you're scared, you see them coming, you don't think you can handle it. You want to back up, you want to turn around, you want to run away. No, you hold your place. You stand, it's denied. But then there is also antistenai, this word withstand in the old Bible, and it means to oppose. Because it's not just I'm this guy on the wall. I'm not just this guard standing at a tower, and there's nothing out there but just green fields and the occasional bunny or jackalope, if you please. I'm just standing there looking and watching and waiting and hoping that if I see somebody, I'll ring a bell. No, you are standing in opposition to something. You are standing opposed to something. You are standing with ideals. You are standing with beliefs. You are standing with conviction. You will stand opposed because your enemy is a devilish God, a lowercase g, God of this world who has beliefs and ideals and convictions and his acolytes, not just the demons of the spirit world, but those who work on their behalf in this world that you can see flesh and blood and who can touch you and who can hurt you they have convictions, they have beliefs, they have agendas, and they are pushing their agendas. What do you do? You stand and you oppose. You're a soldier. Who is your enemy? You are fighting the devil. You, you are fighting the devil. Not some soldier of the devil. You're a soldier of Christ, right? So you think, let's play it fair. I'm a soldier of Christ. I'll fight a soldier of the devil. I'll let Christ fight the devil. Here's the thing. He's already fought the devil and beat the devil. The devil is just a sore loser chucking rocks at you while he runs away before he gets caught, grabbed by his pointed tail, and chucked away to evermore, never to be seen again. You are still, though, not fighting some acolyte of the devil. He will use his acolytes to get to you, but he is looking at you. He is charging the devil himself, charging for you. If that doesn't shake you just a little bit, you're not me, because it does me. I'm not fighting just some foot soldier. 
of the devil. I'm fighting the devil. That's who you're fighting. But you know what else that means? That means you're fighting the wiles of the devil. It means you're fighting the schemes of the devil. It means you're fighting the tactics of the devil. In the original language, the word is methodios. Listen to the word, the methods. See, you're fighting the devil. It's kind of intimidating. Fortunately for you, God can read minds, even demonic ones. He knows the playbook of the devil. And he will tell you exactly how the devil is going to come after you. He says, I know his, I've read your book, to quote Patton. That's an old reference you won't get. He says, I've read your book. I know exactly what you're going to do, devil. I know exactly what your plans are. I know your wiles. I know your schemes. I know your tactics. Your, your way that you lie in wait to attack like a snake in the grass. I know your playbook and I will tell my soldiers how to watch out for you. So what is his playbook? He uses the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the vain pride of life, 1 John 2, 15 through 16. But that's old Bible talk. I need that rubber meets road kind of talk. What does that look like? What is that? If it feels good, do it. That's the devil's attack. If it looks good, take it. That's the devil's attack. If you like it, have it. And don't let anybody tell you that you can't have what you like, that you can't have what you love, that you can't have what you think you need. Don't let anybody tell you that. If you like it, take it. Consequences be damned, they'll say to you. And it's never true. The consequences are never what is damned. It's you that's damned. That's the lie of the devil. He's very good at deflecting that. He's been doing that from the beginning. Did God say you can't have any of these trees? Did God say you can eat from any tree? And Eve said, well, we can eat most of them. There's one tree in the middle. That one right there. We can't eat from that one. We can't touch it. We can't do anything with it. If we do, we'll die. And Eve knows her Bible. Eve knew the answer. Gave a textbook. And the devil said, can you really trust God? Do you know he's telling you the truth? You just met him yesterday. Thank you, Chris. Can you really trust God? How do you know? No, if you ask me, the devil says, because he's, he's, he's around. He's been there. He seems like he knows what he's talking about. If you ask me, the devil says, I think he just doesn't want you to be like him. You will not surely die. In fact, God knows that if you, look how he says that. Not God thinks, not God's worried about. He says God knows. God knows the day you eat from that tree, you'll become like God. And Eve starts to think, starts to stew. That's where this battle takes place. Do you think this fight is fought with a literal sword? That's the illustration. The fight is up here. The fight is in the mind. It will lead you, if you lose up here, to do things sinfully with your body. But the fight takes place here. When you win, you do righteous things. When you lose, you do sinful things. It starts here. It started here with Eve. She started staring at that tree. She started thinking about it. She started looking at that forbidden fruit. And it was really pleasing to the eye to behold. And she was sure it would taste really good. She wanted to be made wise. Lust of the flesh. Lust of the eyes. Pride of life. So she plucked some fruit she should not have touched. She took a bite of fruit she should not have eaten. She gave it to her husband who should have stopped her but did not. And he ate too. And then something happened that the devil said would not happen. He said, if you eat from that tree, you'll become like God. They ate from that tree, they became like the devil. It's the same trick he's been using from the beginning. Go ahead and eat from that tree. Consequences be damned. It's never the consequences that are condemned. It's you. This is what you're fighting. This is where the battle is. You're fighting the devil. You're fighting the devil not the world. You are not fighting the world. If you look with your Christian eyes 
at the lost world and see your enemies, that's sin. Please correct that. You're not alone in that. Lots of people do that sin, but it's sin nonetheless. If you look at the people in the world and do not see lost, drowning people who desperately need a life preserver, if that's not the way you see them, then you will not give them food when they're hungry. You will not give them drink when they're thirsty. You will not give them clothes when they're naked. You will not give them time and attention when they're in prison. You will not give them help when they're sick. You won't do those things for them because they're the enemy. They're not the enemy. The devil's the enemy. They're the slaves shackled to the enemy whether they know it or not desperate to break free you were once a slave shackled to that same enemy those people who you might want to call your enemies are your fellow former prisoners you got out how sad and shameful it would be to look at them and say well i got mine you're on your own no you're a christian soldier you're a student turned teacher break the shackles tell them how the devil is your enemy. The world is not your enemy. What does Paul say in Ephesians 6.12? To whom do we wrestle against? To whom do we wrestle against? Flesh and blood. Or not, not flesh and blood, but spiritual wickedness. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood. The word wrestle is like it sounds. It is to go face to face, nose to nose, eyeball to eyeball, nasty hot breath to nasty hot breath, and just start tussling. It's not... Ten paces, turn around, shoot pistols at dawn. It's not shoot fire arrows and, and cannons from far away. No, it's in their face. You're fighting. You're going to get beat, beaten, battered, and bloodied. You're wrestling, but not against flesh and blood. All, he, I love the way Paul does it all the time. He uses all these illustrative words to make you think down and dirty, in the mud, knock down, drag out, fight. And he says, but it's not fleshly. Take all those thoughts you were just having and apply it to spiritual wickedness in high places the king james says caleb's bible last night hilariously calls it cosmic forces which sounds like something from flash gordon cosmic forces well all it means is you're not fighting a fleshly enemy you're fighting a spiritual enemy spiritual does not mean necessarily good it means not physical it means something that can operate in a spiritual realm and not just any spiritual realm not just any force from a spiritual realm but the highest power of darkness there is spiritual wickedness in high places that's your enemy. That's who you're fighting. You're not fighting the world. Because if you were fighting the world, then the swords would not be metaphorical. And the only time your Bible talks about you picking up swords is taking those swords and hammering them, beating them with hammers until they become pruning hooks. Until they become gardening tools. Until you take those weapons that you formerly would use to murder a person and instead use them to harvest the white fields that are just begging for people to teach them the gospel. That's Isaiah's illustration in chapter 2 of his book. He paints this beautiful picture of the kingdom of the Messiah. That's the kingdom you belong to. This kingdom of the Messiah is this huge mountain with God living on the top of it and the people of God living up there with Him and everybody just screaming from the mountaintop, everybody come up here. Let's all go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He'll teach you, don't worry. He'll teach you His ways. We'll understand His past because out of this spiritual messianic Zion goes a new spiritual messianic law. And He will show us His ways. And what we will do is we will take our weapons of war because we won't need those anymore. We're going to be in unity. We're going to be together. We're going to be fighting a spiritual fight, not a physical one. And we're going to make pruning hooks. We're going to make shears. We're going to make weapons that can gather, not kill. Collect, not put down. Blessed are the warmongers. Your Master says, blessed are the peacemakers. Now, I'm just going to leave that as a sentence. Blessed are the peacemakers. Be a peacemaker and be blessed. Seek 
peace. 1 Peter 3, 9 through 11. In that context, even when the enemy with whom you would seek peace is actively trying to hurt you. Not trying, actively hurting you. Got you down on the ground, pummeling you. Sword at your throat, threatening to kill you if you don't answer the way they want you to answer. If you say you believe in Jesus, they're going to shove the butt of that sword into your throat and run right through your body and kill you like that. While they're doing that, if they're hungry, give them food. If they're thirsty, give them drink. Never does he say, while you're in that position, grab some pocket sand and throw it in their face. Knock them once in the, in the jaw. That's not what he says. He said, that was an accident. He says, you be merciful, you be kind, you be meek, you be loving, you be a one who seeks for peace. What do you do? I wish we had the time, but we do not to study Romans 12 in its entirety. Romans 12, study it sometime from this perspective. This is Paul's Sermon on the Mount. He takes what Jesus says, he dittos it, but he puts it in an application kind of way. He says, let's take all those high concepts that we have in the Sermon on the Mount, let's put them in an application form. At the end of that chapter, Romans 12, Paul says, your enemy hates you, they're going to hurt you. You're going to want to take vengeance. Why? Why do you want to take vengeance? Why is that so natural? Because you're made in the image of God, and God is an avenger. You're made in His image. So when you're wrong, you want to set those scales into balance. You want to do right. You want to make this right. It's not for you to make it right. When they wrong you, your Bible says, set it aside. Don't give place to wrath. Set it aside. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Instead, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. Thirsty, give him drink. And in, in, in treating him that way, Paul says you will dump coals of fire on his head. That does not mean you'll set him on fire. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is when you are kind in a Christian way to your enemy, you will shame your enemy. Because if you've ever been ashamed, you feel the heat on your face as if coals of fire have been put on your head. It's a metaphor. And the only way you can make your enemy feel shame for hurting you is if you respond not in kind, but with kind. Because if you respond in kind, well, everybody does that. They're not going to think twice about it. They're going to be expecting it. They will not expect you to give a muffin in the morning to the one who beat you up last night. But that's Christ. That's Christianity. Overcome evil with good. Because we're not fighting the world. We're fighting the devil. Matthew 25, 41. As Jesus paints a terrifying picture of those who will go away from him. He says those who will go away from him will go to the place prepared for the devil and his angels. Hell is going to be full of lost people. Not just demons, not just Satan, but lost souls who know not God and obey not the gospel, as we talked about this week. Nevertheless, hell is a place prepared not for the lost. God didn't make hell for the lost. God made heaven for the lost and then sent his son to die to bring them there. Those who reject that, that's their choice. But hell was made for the devil and his angels. That's your enemy, not the world. And because he's your enemy, you're equipped with spiritual armor. I'm not going to give you the whole list. We're not going to go through this whole big long gamut once again. But I just want to point out a couple of words to you. As Paul talks about the armor that you put on, the way he describes it is very interesting to me. He says, having some pieces of armor. That word having and duo, having already put on. You're a Spartan soldier kind of way. You've already got this armor on. You're ready to go. You're ready to rock. You're ready to roll because your armor is already on. Your belt's already cinched. Your shoes are already strapped. Your breastplate's already uh, uh, latched onto your body. You are ready to go. Already having on a waist wrapped in truth. Already having on a body covered in righteousness. Already having on feet laced with gospel shoes. What is that? Truth is what you do. The actions you take are true, are verifiable, are veritable. And righteousness is what you are. He that doeth righteousness is righteous even as he is righteous, 1 John 2. 
you can be righteous. You should be righteous. It's not self-righteousness. It's not self-imposed righteousness. It's righteousness that you attained through Jesus Christ, but you have righteousness. You are righteous. So it's just a cinched up part, a skin to skin part of you. Like the breastplate is cinched in tight to your body. Righteousness is who you are. The gospel is what you use. You strap on those shoes and you get to marching with a former sword now turned into a pruning hook to gather the people. Fields are white with harvest, ready to go. But then he says, above all, taking, analambantes, from the original analambano, uh, taking up as needed. Because you won't always be in a constant fight. It comes in waves. And there are moments of cool down. Because the devil doesn't just fight with the stick. He doesn't just fight with the stick. He also fights with the what? Carrot. Yeah. He'll give you the stick. He'll beat you up. He'll bloody you. He'll rough you up. He'll make you want vengeance. He'll make you want to quit. All those things. But sometimes he gives you the carrot. Sometimes he allures. Sometimes he misleads. Sometimes he draws away. So it's going to come in waves. And when it comes back heavy and hard and you're in the dogfight and it's bad, then you pick up a shield to defend with. A shield of faith. Listen, I understand the need, and I'm, I'm right there. I'm in the dogfight doing it too sometimes. I understand the need, the conviction, sometimes the compulsion to want to fight every battle, to want to chase every dog and, and every kind of uh, you know, false doctrine and, and run it down. Not that I run down dogs, but the metaphor just kind of got away from me. I understand that need to want to fight, 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 fight. Faith is not what I'm supposed to be defending. Faith is what's defending me. It's a shield of faith. I'm not, God does not call on me to defend him. God doesn't need me to defend him. I'm not the defender here. I have faith through Christ that protects me from the devil. We've got it all messed up and we think I've got to constantly be fighting the fight for the faith. And I, I must fight the fight. But I don't need to be having it from the perspective of I need to be an offensive person. Because then I'm an offensive person. I need to have this meekness about me. I need to have this mildness about me. Because my master was meek and lowly in heart. Offering rest to the souls who want him. The faith that my shield is, don't twist that around to be constantly attacking with it. It's a shield. It's protecting you. This is what God is giving you. Because the devil is a dangerous enemy. You've got a shield to defend you. And then he says, and take. Um, dexaste. In other words, you've got your armor. It's already on. You've got your shield by your side ready to pick up as needed. Now I'm going to give you a couple things. You didn't have these. These are being given to you. All of these in a way are being given to you. But Paul draws attention to these being given to you. What are you given? You're given a helmet of salvation. You didn't earn it. You didn't buy it. You didn't find it on a road somewhere. You were given salvation. And he puts it on your head. The most important part of the armor piece is the helmet. Because if you don't have a breastplate and you take an arrow to the side, you're probably eventually going to die, especially back then. But not before you get a few other shots in. You're going to take a few other guys with you. You're going to keep on going. You're going to go down swinging. But if you get bludged in the head, if you get knocked in the head, if you can't see, you can't fight. If you can't think, you can't fight. If you're not conscious, you can't fight. You need a helmet. Your helmet, that thing, that most important critical piece of your body armor is salvation itself. And Paul does not say you found it. Paul does not say you made it. Paul says you received it. Take it. Here it is. It's yours. Free. Because there's a fight coming. Here you need this. And take. Here it's yours. A sword to save with. A sword to save with. You're a soldier unlike any soldier the world has does or will ever see you are a christian soldier and there are other religions that have other swords 
And they fight with real swords. And they kill people in the name of their religion. But that is not so with you. Because your sword does not kill. Your sword saves. Your sword does not take a life. Your sword saves souls. Now I say that. I should add a qualifier. Because if you use your sword correctly, it will take a life. And immediately thereafter, bring it back to a new one. 23 years ago, I was killed. I, I didn't kill myself. I was put to death by a man wielding a sword. He's sitting right over there. Jesse Ellison helped him. Clay Blake helped. David Riley helped. These men stabbed me in the heart with a sword. And in so using their weapon, not out of hatred because I was not their enemy, but out of love, they wielded their sword and they put me to death, helped me be buried in a watery grave so that I could rise to walk in a new life, born and bred for battle to find other people so that every soul oh shoot I'm going to cry so that every soul that I ever pierce every soul that I use my sword to put in the grave of water it's my spiritual son as Paul said about Timothy it's Chris's spiritual grandson and whoever converted David converted helped Chris become a Christian. It's his great-grandson. And the lineage perpetuates. This is your weapon. It does not kill and put down and leave for dead. It puts a sinful body to death. And it brings them back alive in Jesus Christ. That's your job. That's your mission. That's your service as a soldier. You get to live the greatest life from here to eternity. You get to... You get to take soldiers away from the devil's employ. Everyone you save, that's one less he has. That's one more that Christ has. You get to do that. That gets to be your job. And the worst thing the devil can do to you is kill you. Which is the best news. Because it's an express lane to Jesus. What can he do? He cannot win. He's already lost. He's just a sore loser. And you're the soldier on the side that has won. Now if you're here this evening and you're not a Christian... Let me invite you to put yourself to death. To bury your old, sinful, condemned self in a watery grave. And rise up, shackles broken, free to serve. Free to be a slave to Jesus Christ the King. If you are a Christian, but you've stopped being a soldier, would you please repent? Pick up your sword. Pick up your shield. Because we're in one of those waves right now. We need you. Fight with us. If we can help you and encourage you, please let us know how right now as we stand and sing. And while I've got you on the phone, if you want to subscribe, you can do so by going to anchor.fm slash matthew-martin414. I've got uh, free audio files here and there that I'll release every now and then. But for the most part, I put everything behind a massive giant paywall where you have to pay upwards of I think it's 99 cents a month. So if you can, if you can manage that a dollar a month, <clears throat> that's, you know, it's not easy, but if you want to whip out a buck, 
then you get hundreds of audio files of all of my sermons and classes and devotionals. So it's uh, anchor, A-N-C-H-O-R dot F-M slash Matthew, M-A-T-T-H-E-W dash Martin 414 and hit subscribe for a buck and you get all my hundreds and hundreds of audio files. All right. Thank you.